Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today's topic is optimism. So last week we talked about utopia, and I think maybe a good place to start with our discussion of optimism this week is talking about the difference between optimism and utopia and optimism and hope. I think optimism is the feeling that projects utopia. So when people think about what their perfect future would look like, I think the feeling that accompanies that is a kind of optimism. I think the problem with optimism, though, is that utopias are often best used as sort of a counterfactual. It's like, what's wrong with the world right now? Well, in a utopian world, here are the things that would be fixed. Utopias are positioned as the anti-now, you know, as a different kind of space to interrogate what's happening now that we find unjust or problematic. And I think that that optimism about the future is, is often misplaced. And it's problematic because people put their hope for the future and their feelings of optimism into institutions that won't deliver it. So the optimism turns cruel because the very vehicles that they think will get us to utopia actually end up undermining it. And I think that that's a paradox, certainly, of liberalism. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Is that liberalism, you know, articulates the idea that there will be justice for all or equality for, you know, for all, certainly under the eyes of the law, and then ultimately, it's liberals that ultimate that often sell out that utopian dream of equality. And so, the optimism I think turns cruel when people are forced to to face the fact that they misplace their optimism in institutions that ultimately don't have the power to transform the culture the way that they think that they will. I agree, and I th- I mean I think optimism often involves having certain trust in institutions that can serve you individually Mm -hmm. like having certain ideas about the culture and your place in it that are not only misguided but actually not healthy for you as an individual you know lauren berlant has that wonderful book on cruel optimism that i love so much and that everybody should go out and read and i like that book because berlant talks about how people have these unhealthy attachments to ideas or narratives or feelings or structures in a culture, even though they're deteriorating or even though they're unjust or unhealthy or problematic or evil, you know, and and people remain attached to fantasies about them despite watching them fail over and over and over and over again. And I think that we are clearly living in a cruelly optimistic time where people have an unreasonable amount of optimism based on the actual day-to-day lived experiences of a great number of people in this country. Yeah, I mean, first of all, the objects of desire, for the most part, are crazy. (laughs) Unattainable. 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 But not only that, uh just not even representative of something that would be a good life. I mean, outwardly, perhaps, but they don't have any models for, like, 
intimacy and emotion and feelings. It's like optimism now is centered around narratives that are completely outward and like completely about class and acquisition and attractiveness and narrow models of success. Shallow. So Mm -hmm. shallow and surface. Yeah. So it's not only that, like, things that aren't actually good for you to focus your attention on as a human being, Mm -hmm. but also the things that we're being optimistic about are also unattainable. Mm -hmm. I think uh, a lot about people who buy lottery tickets even because they, you know, they want, like, a cheat code to... Uh, attaining certain things and they're optimistic about achieving a certain lifestyle for themselves and they're optimistic about it anyway but they see the lottery as like an easy way even though it's like statistically not you're not getting gonna win the lottery you're not gonna win the lottery that's a cruel kind of optimism that people have but it's also your it's a great example that you chose because it also demonstrates how people's identities are aspirational. So even though they can't access a lot of the fantasy of economic security, they want to so much that they're willing to make themselves more economically insecure just to enjoy the fantasy of economic Mm -hmm. security. And that is super destructive, and that's uh, certainly how cycles of poverty are exacerbated. Payday lending is about fantasies of acquisition. I mean, there are whole parts of the way that the monetary culture is structured that that draw people into participating in that fantasy that are just massively destructive. That's a really simple example because it like demonstrates, you know, a monetary loss for people who like have those types of optimism about a lifestyle that they'll never be able to attain. Mm-hmm. But there's also, like, a huge divestment of resources for other types of optimism. And, I mean, people as individuals are not willing to invest in the things that would be better for them. I mean, the other thing, though, the the other dynamic that's creating this um, social situation is just a constant sense of precarity. That everybody is just one step away from the abyss and that every negative setback or setback, whether or not it's negative, right? But every setback is negative, and it's a trauma. It's like an an irreconcilable trauma that marks people forever. And that kind of language, where there's a culture of fear and a culture of scarcity, and where people feel like any decision that they make is going to throw them off of the ledge, that, I think, drives them to have unreasonable amounts of faith in institutions that are constantly destroying them. You know, I mean, I'm from the North. I grew up Catholic. I moved to the South, and I'm like, what is this megachurch thing? I'm like, even the people, you know, that I grew up with that were super religious took vows of poverty and vows of charity. (laughs) And you're going to give, you're going to tithe money to a billionaire preacher? It boggles my mind. It's, it's, it is the exact performance of inequity that I find so offensive. Evangelical capitalism, the prosperity gospel, that entire rhetorical framework exists ent- entirely to subjugate 
those members to an economic order at which they are they continue to be at the bottom. I mean, it's entirely about economic domination, which is not surprising, except that there are other modes of you know spiritual engagement that are antithetical to creating that kind of economic dominance and replicating within a religious order or within a parish or a church or whatever. Um, and so it's also not surprising because that optimism that you see in the prosperity gospel is of the same ilk as the American dream or manifest destiny. There's a sense of entitlement about mm -hmm. it. It's extremely white and it's fundamentally rooted in economic domination and conquest. And I would argue that those are, are part of the founding of America. They're mm -hmm. part of the, of the fabric of the culture that, you know, that this, these hierarchies of domination are continuing to impact our lives because they're a fabric of the culture. And it allows for the perpetuation of a social order that doesn't work for the, poor? Huge, the vast majority <laughs> of people even. Yeah. So it allows for the perpetuation of the system that is really harmful. And even if the system isn't harmful, which I think it is, if you disagree, it still allows for the perpetuation of like personal ideals that can be really destructive to you, like the quest for like the accumulation of things, objects, things that you attach yourself to that aren't actually productive. There's a Marxist scholar, actually, Antonio Gramsci, who wrote about how there would never be a socialist revolution or a communist revolution mm -hmm. in the United States because of the American dream. Right. Like, people would never overthrow the system because they genuinely were optimistic about their prospects as people, like, their ability to move forward. Even though now it's completely obvious that the, the social mobility is stagnant <laughs> yeah and there's it's well documented people have gone through generations of seeing their families struggle without a lot of progress and it's still the american dream is still a thing it, it's so crazy it is so crazy it I is don't so know. crazy i don't know how many like iterations of death of a salesman have to, like <laughs> go through like <laughs> Every theater in America before people realize that the American dream is bullshit. Another crazy thing to me is, you know, we have the uh, Walton College of Business here in Fayetteville, um, named after Sam Walton, and he's one of the paragons of American success. It's especially, especially interesting because he was a pretty humble person who amassed giant amounts of wealth and, like, created the biggest an empire yeah <laughs> um and it's weird to me like to see how here in Fayetteville his story is like used as an example people are still talking about how Sam Walton achieved all the success and how how possible it is when <laughs> It's totally crazy. I think the way that the Walton College of Business is, is designed actually is really interesting. There's this like atrium that's dedicated to Sam Walton's life. There's like a big statue of Sam Walton in the middle and it's white. It looks like uh. almost like a temple, a religious temple for Sam Walton. And the rest of the hallway is where you like actually have the classes or like dungeon-esque 
So there's all these dungeons where you actually go to take your business classes and like if you succeed or whatever, maybe you have the opportunity to be like Sam Walton. But it's kind of weird to me to see like this dungeon style architecture. I don't know what style of architecture it is, but it's like very dark. It looks like a basement. It looks like night, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like where I imagine I always thought it was like where Snape would if you were like going to potions class or whatever. That's what the hallways looked like. It's where the dark arts are taught. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's weird to me that people like go through these dark hallways. And they walk through this atrium where Sam Walton's being celebrated and his life's being celebrated. And it's like, he's a, an icon. He's like a religious icon almost to these business students. But they're never going to achieve the same amount of success that he does. And to me, it's like a giant joke. It's like a religion to me. When people are like, but white masculinity these... <laughs> is a religion in America. Yeah, economic success is the American dream. The American dream is the American religion. I mean, you know, I see. Think about it right now in the coverage of Donald Trump's, <laughs> dare I say, candidacy for president. It's like Donald Trump did not get rich because he made good investment decisions. His dad was super millionaire. I mean, he bailed him out after every bankruptcy. It's not like he's the guy who rose to the top on his, you know, grit and his determination and clawed his way to the top. I mean, his is totally a story of how privilege magnifies privilege, you know, about how certain families have been controlling the wealth in the country since the inception. And I don't know. For me, you know, I write about pessimism and how pessimism creates different kinds of spaces to push back against this kind of optimism and heroizing and hope and misplaced faith in institutions that are not going to deliver people to the promised land. And I think that there's a lot more transformative potential for pessimism because I think there, for, for huge populations of people here in the U.S. and elsewhere – Hope is an untouchable feeling. It's passe. It's not something that people can access or touch or feel. And I think that without hope, people have a different, more realistic assessment of their relationship to power. Yeah, I agree. And that's, I mean, that's what Gramsci was saying. He was like... Organic intellectuals. He was like, there's never going to be a revolution (laughs) because people are complacent and... This culture is so optimistic, and they like sell that lie, and it creates that complacency. So that's we were saying pessimism is useful. You're you should be pessimistic about the goal itself. Yes, it's like pessimism to me is like just asking more questions. Should I even be wanting to have a lifelong career? Should I even want to be married? Should I even want a lot of money? You know, I, as a first-generation college student, as a poor kid who had to figure her way into college, I always cultivated lots of outs, so I worked lots and lots of jobs at the same time. Even when I was in grad school, I taught two classes in the morning down in Washington, D.C., and then took the train back out to Maryland and taught two in the afternoon, and I worked as a GA in the library 20 hours a week, and I did my classwork, and I graduated early. And I say all of that not because that's a mark of distinction, but for me, I always, I always was quite aware that I was, I was in a precarious position. You know, I was getting a PhD 
in a, uh, in a higher ed, you know, moment that was shrinking as federal investment was declining. And that was a risky thing, mm-hmm. you know. So I wanted to make sure that I had lots of opportunities and that my degree would be valuable in lots of different arenas of life so that I could have a job. And I feel like that kind of um, orientation towards power as a pessimist, like I may not get a job out of grad school as an academic. I may not get into this PhD program. I may not get X, Y, or Z. I feel like the fact that I was planning for those things Mm -hmm. as a pessimist made me more well-rounded. It it forced me to take risks and do jobs where I learned all kinds of interesting skill sets. It divorced me from a linear narrative about my career. It made me feel less precarious (laughs) about my positionality. So it gave me much more cognitive and emotional comfort. I feel like pessimism has served me as possibly the most useful emotional tool in my toolbox. I did, I did the same thing. I mean, not that it's, like, <laughs> served me well in any particular way, but, yeah, I was, like, uncertain about my ability to define myself by my academic success, so I decided to do a bunch of student government. I mean, there's a lot of ways to, like, take pessimism and... Use it to diversify it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. But also, like, pessimism is useful. Like, gets you out of dangerous situations. I was telling you about this story by this writer out of Little Rock. It's wonderful. Kevin Brockmeyer. The ceiling. Oh, yeah. Yeah, where this... Tell that story. Yeah, so... um, The story is about this town. Um, There's, like, a monolithic black structure. Almost, like, a... As it gets closer, it's really just, like, a giant ceiling. But, uh... The town sees it for like months out and it's like slowly descending to earth and it's just like this huge structure and so it starts drawing closer and closer to earth and just like everyone pretty much in the town goes about (laughs) their business as if the thing is not going to fall straight on them. It starts crashing through their roofs, you know, starts breaking electrical wires, cell phone towers, it starts crashing through their roofs and still like (laughs) the main character is there just like in fact it's still to the point where like he has to like stoop over when he's walking he's they still don't leave they just act as if that ceiling is never gonna crush them and of course it does and actually um in the final moment of the story he's he's had trouble with his wife over the course of this watching this thing come down upon their town and he like kisses his wife, the structure is about to crush them, he can, like, see his breath on it. And he's, like, optimistic about the fact that she'll, like, kiss him back as it's, like, crushing him. So, to me, it's just the fact that they just didn't do anything about it. They shouldn't have been optimistic, you know? They should have gotten the fuck out of there. I mean, that's how I feel about climate change. It just keeps me up at night. Oh, you yeah. Know? I mean... The, basically, the whole world is like, I mean, the climate will adjust. Yeah, or it won't. It's I not mean, so far. I mean, it seems like we might want to err on the side of caution. Like, pessimism could, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, keep us from a mass extinction. It seems like in a case like this, where the costs are so yeah. high and the risks are so clear, and the scientists are all so, mm-hmm. you know, uniform in their assessment of the risk, 
we might want to be pessimistic. Yeah, and yet, nope, ceiling's never going to crush us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. On as we, we should just eat all the beef we can and drive all the cars and never invest in public transportation. I mean, it's, it's an absurd amount of, invisibi- or of invincibility. Not invisibility. Um, <laughs> people may or may not feel in- invisible, but no, it's an incredible amount of invincibility. And the thing about pessimism is I, I think it leads us closer to justice. Mm-hmm. If the goal of anything is justice, right, where people are treated humanely and we aren't, and we live in Northwest Arkansas where the rates of, of hunger are incomprehensibly high or where homelessness is so high or youth incarceration is so high or teen pregnancy or whatever, if, you, if those are things you would genuinely care about ameliorating, then the goal is to get closer to justice. Well, optimism optimism that kids won't have sex is not the way to go if you want to decrease teen pregnancy. Education is the way to go, right? Hoping that people will change their behavior without investments in the kinds of incentives and, and structural tools for social success. Those are the things that transform from a culture from being unjust to just. And and we, and I've said this before on the podcast, but you know we need to have a reassessment of shared responsibility because a democracy is only as strong as its weakest member. And so, if you want to live in a community that's free from fear and free from crime, that means that you actually have to increase the millage for your property taxes to invest in education. That means that you decrease the size of the military to pay for you know public housing. I mean, that's that's what that looks like. And it's reasonable to do those things. It's reasonable and ethical to care for others. Mm-hmm. Even if there's a material consequence for yourself that makes your life slightly less comfortable. <clears throat> that is what ethical living is about. But I mean, even if, I mean, people just assume things are going to pan out. And people are even voting people who don't have, they're not in good circumstances. They're still voting in ways that don't promote social justice or improvements in welfare because they think that they're going to be in a different social class eventually. I I feel like it is a very destructive orientation towards the world. It's like very a very close cousin to denial. <laughs> yeah. You know? And it, it it prohibits people from being able to see variables that actually undermine their happiness and health. And so for me, you know, I feel like lean in is a meme of optimism. I feel like it's an an optimistic expression that asks people to ignore the data that they have about how their workplace is cruel or how people that they work with undermine their work or devalue their contributions or refuse to promote them or are racist or sexist or ableist or, you know, and, and it asks them to kiss ass anyway. And that seems to be terrible, detrimental advice for women in the workplace. It is. It's certainly terrible for trans women. It's terrible for women of color. It's it's terrible for first generation women, for immigrant women, for Native American mm-hmm. women. I mean, <laughs> 
to ask women to accommodate the powers that are undermining their ability to lead healthy and happy lives. To accommodate that power is just, it's really offensive. But part of it is like asking them to focus on it so that they don't lean back and see the power itself. It's like, yes. you know, we, we've been talking inside and outside the podcast about how one of the things about the American culture is that it warps our ability to understand what our actual personal responsibilities are and what the rep- responsibilities of others are and then what of our experiences are together that we share responsibility for. And I feel like lean in is all about avoiding a conversation about structural power and shared responsibility because it is accommodationist. It is about accommodating structures of power that undermine the the health and happiness of women. And I think pessimism serves women much, much better in the workplace. It places the onus of responsibility on women. Like if you aren't achieving these things that you're optimistic about, it's your because fault. you're leaning in. Yeah, it's your fault. And that becomes, that becomes really destructive. Barbara Ehrenreich and Bright Sided kind of criticizes that type of mindset because she thinks she makes the argument that people who aren't positive are blamed a lot. <laughs> people who are like not optimistic about things are blamed. Um, so in some ways, like if you lean back, you're being blamed for not leaning in, you know, you didn't work hard enough. She talks about her cancer. Um, and there's like this huge culture of positivity in cancer for some reason. You have to just be happy about your diagnosis. And people were saying, she was reading in message boards, people saying like it was a blessing that they had received breast cancer and that it changed their lives and that they're like, they're different people now in like a positive sense. And Aaron Reich's like, no, I'm pissed off that I have this. I deserve to be angry about it. Just like if you lean in and your company leans away from you, you deserve to be pissed off and it's not your fault. You deserve to like be able to say that it's not your fault. I feel like, um, I feel like leaning back gives women perspective on power that provides data to enable them to make potentially different decisions. And that's not to say that every woman has the opportunity or ability to make different decisions, especially poor women, but, you know, lean-in is not really written for them, um, which is why it's also suspect. But I think that leaning back gives them better data to help to help them make better decisions about their lives, because they can see how they're being exploited. Whereas when they lean in so closely... All they can see is the day-to-day grind and the fear and the scarcity and the precarity and the um, shame and loathing, self-loathing. And all they can see is that visceral, you know, drive to get closer and closer to the source of power. It becomes very difficult to have a critical perspective on one's life if you're that close, you know, to the source of power that's controlling your destiny. So... For me, I think I think lean-in is a disastrous form of optimism, you know, that, that we really need to critically reassess. 
you know, we've talked before about how Sandberg credits her husband, you know, and lean in as the source of her success. And, um, you know, it's cruel to lean in to a paradigm where she's being promoted based on the fact that she's close to the kind of power that she wants women to get sucked into being closer to herself, you know? It's like there are a ton of women who are not going to be socially promoted because they're not married for a whole host of reasons, by choice, by circumstance, by convention. Um, and so they can't get access to power because they, they haven't leaned in all the way. I mean, it's super sexist. Uh, that seems problematic. And the whiteness of it, too, is an optimism that, you know, her experience as a white woman, multi-millionaire, is somehow going to provide the kind of life advice that would resonate among women who are not of her class or race or mm -hmm. background. And even though she writes some caveats to that to, to appear to be sensitive, ultimately the advice of the book takes those variables as fact for her readers. And that's also troubling. Yeah, it's hard advice. I mean, it's hard advice to, like, read Sam Walton's book and <laughs> imagine that you'll do as well as he did. I mean... That's right. That's exactly right. It's like you're an anomaly. Your advice mm -hmm. is not... It's not practical. And really, it's just a marketing tool. It's like she's making money off of the optimism of her readers, which is like a second form of exploitation mm -hmm. of their optimism. I know we were talking about um, earlier about negative studies that aren't mm -hmm. negative results. Null sets, mm -hmm. yeah. So when results aren't was expected, they just aren't published. And I think a big argument against Lean In is like, Cheryl's successful and she's dispensing advice about how to be successful but we also need to hear like the stories of thousands of people who worked their butts off and have and like leaned into an organization that leaned away and they fell on their face yep those are stories that are equally important but they're not being told yeah i don't want to see you cook like julia child for 365 days i want to see you try to live like Sheryl sandberg for 365 <laughs> days I mean, it's just, it's complete absurdity. How much risk do you take leaning in when you're already a multimillionaire? None. Zero. Mm -hmm. That risk is not distributed equally to her as it is to other kinds of women in the workforce. And, yeah. We talked about it earlier, too, when we were talking about work, where Mindy Kaling was talking about how hard she works. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's a workaholic. Yeah, and it's like, so are a bunch of other people who are, like, way less successful than you. And, you know, all all the famous comics are pretty much like, yeah, I went to three comedy gigs every night. I worked, I went, did comedy whenever possible. I worked really hard. I stayed up all night. You know, I wrote jokes every day. <laughs> um, but I know plenty of comics who pretty much do the same thing. And, mm, <laughs> I mean, most of them, if not all of them, will never... No one will know their names outside of a very small subset of people. Mm -hmm. A couple of my friends who are comics just moved to Chicago to focus on comedy, to try and get a career in comedy, doing stand-up in Chicago. Because, I mean, 
I mean, I guess that's a better option than continuing to do comedy in Fayetteville. <laughs> like, it is. Yeah, possibly, yeah. <laughs> um, if that's really what you want to do. But part of me is like, that's a weird optimism. Of course, if you never, like, try, then you'll definitely fail, but... <laughs> I would rather they be optimistic about comedy than being Sam Walton. That's true, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that they're doing that. Because there's a, it's a more manageable There is fun people, yeah. And even if, you know, it's a fun lifestyle um, for the most part. But but I just, I want them to know, and, I, and I'm sure they do. They see plenty of other comics on the regular. It's just like, hard work isn't enough. There's so many stories out there of people who <laughs> tried and failed. It's like the need for that other side of the story that's not Cheryl Sandberg's. Exactly. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.